0: Now, you guys are in for a treat. Pastor Rick Brown's going to be teaching today, but f- before he teaches, uh, we have Christine Soul here. She is the founder and CEO of Providence Heights. This is a nonprofit organization created to house women and children in need and provide them with counseling, education, and jobs. Her ministry is amazing. Her testimony is amazing. She's here and she's going to share a little bit with us about her ministry. So give a Godspeak welcome to Christine Soul. Thank you, Micah. Okay, he looks just like my grandbaby, and it is so wild. Oh, my gosh. I feel like I'm seeing him as an adult. I just want to say thank you for being here, and I am so honored to be in a church that stands unwaveringly for the word of God and what Jesus represents. So thank you so much. So my name is Christine Soul. I'm going to run through my life in about 10 minutes, and so um, I can do this, Pastor Rick. You can get my book out in the back, and that will give you a better glimpse of what I'm talking about. So my story is, you know, that I started doing drugs about the age of 10. At 17, I was pregnant with my first daughter, and less than two years later, I had identical twins at 19. At 19, I was a meth addict, I was being trafficked, I was abused, I was living a gay lifestyle, I was filled with rage. And at 21, I fell to my knees, I cried out to God, and I said, if you are real, take my life, it's yours. And I so tangibly felt the power and the presence of God that I went and I threw the drugs and alcohol away. And instead of having a heart attack for quitting meth like I did, Instead, I had zero temptations, desires, or withdrawals. I was completely set free in an instant. Well, that actually set me on this journey of trying to figure out who's this Jesus guy. <laughs> Guess I better, I better master this one. And it also ended me on this journey of trying to figure out how to survive bouncing from couch to couch, house to house with my three children. It was a Interesting season in my life because one would think that that would be hard, but it was actually the most beautiful time in my entire life up till that point. I ended up in a basement with one bed, three babies. And I remember at one point I had fanned out all my bills. And I thought, man, I can't even put a dent into anything. I wasn't even qualified for a job that would pay for my childcare. I had $40 to my name. And I thought, wow, you know... God really rescued me last time. Maybe He can do something with my life, with this situation. You know, I wish I would have written down everything that God did in that season of my life, because, you know, I never even had a late payment. Everything was provided. But you know what I did? Here's the key: is I took that 40 dollars that I had and I thought, "God, I just trust you." So I wrote a check. And I gave it to the one person that I knew who went to a Christian church. He didn't know it was my last penny to provide for my babies. But I trusted God. And God provided. Not only did he provide with with taking care of everything that I needed, but you know, 24 years later, the guy that I gave that check to has been my husband. And you know, I... Yeah. Yeah. He is amazing. But you know, I went from a life of extreme poverty to marrying the most generous man in the world, who allowed me the opportunity to live a life of compassion and philanthropy. And so that's what I've done. Well, about three and a half years ago, God put on my heart to start a facility for women in my situation. And you know, what he really told me to do was they need four things. He said, they need Jesus, someone to believe in them, training and education, and they need an opportunity. And in that moment, three and a half years ago, I said, yes, Lord, I'll do it. So what we've started to do is really based on where I was at on that, on that one bed with my four babies is, is to really focus on prevention. My feet never landed on the streets. So the way I like to describe it to people is you know that that so many of us have been at the edge of the cliff. How many here have been at the edge of the cliff? The next critical steps that we take are going to determine whether we start to fall off that cliff. And the problem is is that there's so many people falling off the cliff right now, and there's amazing organizations out there, and they're throwing ropes, they're throwing ropes. But depending on how far they've fallen off that cliff will really determine whether we can pull them up, or if they even have the strength to hold on. So what we focus on is being a guardrail. There's a statistic. Women have 72 hours on the streets before pimps and drug dealers get to them. 72 hours. Now imagine the mental trauma from just hitting the streets, the, the uh, abuse, the drug addiction, the trafficking, babies being taken away from their mamas into foster care. We believe that women should not be a number or a statistic. The only number or statistic that I want to know is that the women that we prevent from falling off the cliff that they are daughters of the most high God. They are more than conquerors in Christ. They can accomplish and do great and mighty things. That's all I need to know is that we've launched them into the trajectory of their lives. That's the stats we need to look for. So at Providence Heights, we do two different things. We have Providence Heights is our nonprofit organization that provides, it's a a residential entrepreneurial training center. So it's like a university. You don't go to a university to live in a dorm. You go to a university to change the trajectory of your life. At Providence Heights... We offer the housing, it's beautiful, it's amazing, but no, it's all about the entrepreneurial skills to change their life. And so we have started something called Providence Collective. Providence Collective is where we start businesses. Now we actually opened, this was three and a half years ago, but we opened in March of this year. And in six weeks we started a coffee business. We purchased coffee from um, one of the top coffee-producing um, organizations in the world. Nick Vojacech is actually involved in it. Um, and so, so we've produced coffee, but we've actually taught, in fact, you can buy the coffee out there, we've taught the women how to do the marketing, how to do the photography. They built the website. They do project and, and package fulfillment. This is all them. And in six weeks, we had a product in market. We have, we have women who have actually started two businesses as a result since March. There's bracelets back there that you can purchase as well that's one of the women's businesses. And so we actually teach them. They have three different tracks that they can take. One, we teach them all of the skills that they need to start a business. They can just stay with that, and they can continue on that road. Or they can do like a franchise-type um, facility where... where um, will stay with Providence Heights, and that will go toward um, funding the vision of Providence Heights so that we can be sustainable on our own. 70% will go into an account for them. They're all learning QuickBooks. They're learning all kinds of things. Um, And then also the other track is that they could just completely go on to, to their own journey starting their business. And so we have some amazing women, but I want to point out Emily. Emily is our dear girl who was having a lot of problems, and and. The world was saying, we need to do this. We need, she needs to be hospitalized. She needs medication. She needs all these different things. And I'm looking at her, I'm like, she needs deliverance. The girl needs deliverance. <laughs> you know what we did? We, we, as a staff, prayed and we fasted for three days. All of the ladies decided to pray and fast with us. That woman is so filled with joy, radically saved, baptized, and, and this is now the life that she's living. She's getting ready to write children's books. And how to walk through trauma. So that's our gal. So, anyway, these are our needs. And you know what? Any, any, that is amazing. She deserves an applaud. So, you can see here, these are our needs. Um, and, guys, I am telling you, a $5 recurring gift is a blessing. That's something that we can count on from month to month. And so we're just getting started. And I want to point out just one of them. The one-year program is $26,000 for a woman to be provided for for a year. Now, the government charges the good old taxpayers $80,000 per person, per homeless person. You think they're getting the services we're getting? No, not close. So it's phenomenal. But, But we have a hotel that will house 88 women plus their children. So that number right there is a critical number, because the more that we can grow in, in the ability to bring in more women, the faster we can have them in and, and, and house them. so um Thank you for allowing me to be here. I just want to pray for you guys. Lord Jesus, I just thank you, Father. We just trust you. You're a good Father. Even when I gave my $40, Lord, I I knew that you would provide. And I know that you will provide for Providence Heights and the collective. And I just pray blessings on every person here, Lord God, that you do exceedingly abundantly above all that they could ask, think, or imagine. And I just thank you for this beautiful church that stands fearlessly in proclaiming your good news and in your total gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much. Good morning, one and all. Isn't that awesome? Whether you get involved with uh, a recurring gift of $5 a month. My mom was a single mom, not a single mom, she might as well have been um, with four kids at home. And uh, my stepdad was uh, this convict, you know, going in and out of prison and we were devastated financially, and my mom was crying, and she cried out to God as she left her uh, bartending job. She wasn't going to get paid for three weeks, and there was a five dollar bill in a vacant uh, parking lot, and she looked down, and she picked up that five dollars, and she said, that five dollars gave me hope that God was going to take care of us. So the reality of, uh, you know, what Christine's doing and people that are in that spot just, you know, devastated lives, and One of the greatest joys you'll ever experience is giving. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. When you can help people, there's no greater joy. It's just a blessing. Well, hey, Pastor Rob is uh, crushing it over at SAS, which is Student Action Summit with Charlie Kirk in Tampa, Florida, just so you know where your beloved pastor is, and they are having a great time with great guest speakers. And it's such a, such a blessing. But we are reading through Anchored in the Word, which is a two-year reading through God's Word. And if you didn't bring a Bible today, our ushers would love to give you a Bible and you can read from it. If you don't have a Bible, take it home. One of the guys last night, he got the Bible and he goes, are you serious I can take this home? And I'm like, it's yours, man. <laughs> take it. And uh, just raise your hand, they'll get one to you. We're going to be looking in Acts chapter 27 and 28 this morning for our message, Surviving the Storms of Life. And this story in Acts chapter 27 and 28 of Paul the Apostle making a arduous, uh, scary journey to Rome from Caesarea Philippi, where he was a prisoner, is, is really a, a, a combination of uh, the deadliest catch that you watch maybe on TV, the storm these guys are out there fishing in the Alaskas. And uh, uh, and then Survivor, and then Gilligan's Island. So if you could put all three of those, if you could put all three of those things together, you got our story: surviving the storms of life. Because so often in our lives, there are people that. Uh, whatever circumstances, we fall under their preview or their authority, and they're making decisions that are out of our control. But even in the midst of that, God can watch over our lives. God can take care of you and I. But one of the key components of the storms of life, if you examine all the way through the scriptures, there's different reasons that people go into storms. Sometimes the devil brings on a storm to test somebody's faith, like in the story of Job, when the storm hit his... uh, a family's house and all of his children his 10 children were celebrating somebody's birthday and and it crushed all of his children in one fell swoop just boom and the whole temptation was if you touch everything Job has he will curse you to your face that's what Joe that's what Satan said to God about Job that he was a mercenary he basically served God because of the blessing wasn't true Sometimes we go into the storms of life because we are just simple boneheads, right? Our own stupidity sends us into a storm. And then we look around and blame everybody else and blame God and blame the devil and blame, it's like, no, you're just an idiot, right? God tells, God tells Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go to that great city Nineveh. I want you to go tell them about me. He says, forget that. And he goes down to Joppa the opposite way. He goes down into a, a boat. He goes down into the ocean. And he goes down into the be- belly of the great sea creature until God got his attention. He was so stubborn and such a bonehead that it took three days for him to break in the, inside the, the, <laughs> this great sea creature. Now, people go, come on. Isn't that a fairy tale? Did you guys just see the report of the lobster diver? Three weeks ago, lobster diver, he's down there free diving for lobster and a big sperm whale comes and puts him right in his mouth and he starts fighting from the inside. And so the sperm whale's like, that's not krill, let that go. (laughs) And kicks him loose and it shows him in the hospital bed. But, But the reality is that God can get your attention in storms from the rebellion of your life. Now some of you have been in a storm. You don't even know why. How'd you show up at church today? Somebody promised you a burger at In-N-Out after this or something? (laughs) Right? You don't even know why you're here. But you've been going through a storm. And Paul the Apostle is this incredible example of how to survive the storms of life and to be connected to the God of the universe in the midst of circumstances that are beyond his control, out of his control, but who is always providentially in control. God is. So let's check it out. Stand with me. We're going to start in Acts chapter 27. Pick it up at verse 6 for our message, Surviving the Storms of Life. Pick it up in verse 6. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy and he put us on board. When he had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also. If by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. Father, we just ask that you would now open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things from your word, that you would nourish our souls, that you would feed us, that you would speak to us in the midst of our own circumstances, in the midst of our own relational conundrums, Lord, things beyond our control, Lord, help us now, we ask by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We first look at this incredible premonition that Paul the Apostle has. It doesn't say it's a prophecy here, it just says that he has this sense about it. Paul was an experienced traveler with his three missionary journeys and his now fourth trip going to Rome. You you just do the math, he has sailed in the Mediterranean over 10,000 miles. I mean, he is a very experienced traveler. Last Saturday night after service, I caught the red eye, flew to New York and came back Friday night at midnight, 6,000 miles, 3,000 there, 3,000 back. And it took me five hours, but it took a long time to spend 10,000 miles in a ship traveling around. And yet in this story, Paul the Apostle had been arrested simply for loving Jesus. That's why he's under arrest. He had appealed to Caesar because the corrupt government was waiting for him to bribe them. He had stood before Felix, before Festus, before Herod Agrippa, and finally goes, forget it, I appeal to Caesar. That was appealing to the Supreme Court of the Roman Uh, empire. So you would get scheduled to go before Caesar. Ultimately, he would have that appointment, go before Caesar Nero, and give a powerful testimony, no doubt, of the love of Jesus Christ and why he was in chains. But in order to get there, they uh, employed this centurion by the name of Julius, and Julius is now in charge. He's got other prisoners, and Paul's got a couple of companions. Luke, who's writing this in the Gospel of Luke, he is on this boat. He's going to be in this storm himself, and also a guy uh, from Thessalonica by the name of Aristarchus. And so, These guys are now on the boat. They're in an Alexandrian grain ship. Now, how did the ships work in that day? They did not have the ability. As you see this ship here, this is a small version. They had square sails and they had these two paddles or oars. They did not have a rudder and uh, sails that could tack. Meaning, if you've ever been on in uh, a sailboat and you can go into the wind as you tack back and forth, they had no ability to tack. They're very primitive, and Historians tell us these were about 140 feet long, this grain ship from Alexandria, and 36 feet wide. And it not only has a big load of grain from Egypt, delivering it to Rome, but it also has 276 passengers. Think of it, almost 300 people. About as many people as, this room will hold about 400. So just two-thirds of this room would be on this boat. So you're sitting on a lot of grain, and now you're going this direction. And Paul the apostle says this to them. This is fascinating, isn't it? But Paul knew beyond all things, you see, that God had a plan for him to go to Rome. He knew in his own heart back in Acts uh, chapter 9 verse 15 that he was going to stand before kings and people in authority. It says, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. That's what the Lord told Ananias who was going to go pray for him. Paul was going to be a guy that stood before kings, amazingly. And Paul knew himself in Acts 19:21. Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. He sensed this destiny to arrive. Have you ever had that going on inside of you? For whatever reason, God's taken me from point A to point B, and I don't know Why? And then God speaks it to him very powerfully in Acts 23, 11, when he says, Be of good cheer, Paul, as for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. He's like, dude, you're going to Rome. How am I going to get there? <laughs> the Lord's going to use the Roman government and uh, a free ride... Through a terrible storm to deliver him safely at the feet of Caesar Nero so he can tell the most powerful man on the planet at that time in history about Jesus' love. Do you think God has the ability to get you from where you are right now into the perfect place to be a witness for him? He does, in your neighborhood, at work. And sometimes we think, wow, that's such a coincidence, that's so random. No, God is orchestrating the affairs of your life. He says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works that he has prepared beforehand that you and I should walk in them. God already knows what he wants to do with your life. And as you walk in it, you sense the blessing of God poured out on your life as you sense his will. Paul was in that flow as all this happened. But imagine you're a prisoner. (laughs) You're a prisoner now. You're going to tell the centurion and the helmsman, which is the captain of the ship, and the owner of the ship, that their decision to keep sailing is a really stupid idea. Now, how's that going to go over? Right? He's a preacher. Right? He's a scholar. He's an academic in that sense. These guys are professional sailors. They are professional businessmen. He is a professional soldier. And the last thing in the world they're going to do is to listen to advice about sailing from somebody that's not a sailor. Have you ever felt like God put something on your heart to share with someone, but it is so out of your area of expertise that just like, I don't want to speak about it, but it is, is it out of God's expertise? No. Does he know the future? Yes. He knows, he says, at the very beginning of something, I know how it's going to turn out in the end. Isn't that the cool thing about God? I love being God's servant. And over and over throughout my life, the Lord just drops these incredible life-giving messages to me about navigating things in the future. You know how it works. Sometimes it just seems like a burden or a pressure or a thought goes through your head. The day after Christmas, 2007, I had invested some money in the stock market. Now, I'd never really invested in the stock market. I always did real estate. I would flip real estate on the side as a pastor so that I could keep food on the table for my family in the early days of starting things. You have to work really hard. And I love real estate, and I love flipping things. But a friend talked me into it. He was a brother. He's like, hey, invest that 35000 into the uh, stock market. So I did. And he goes, you just leave it alone, right? Ups and downs, you leave it alone. And don't be one of those purple people that are like a nail-biter about this stock market. So I said, oh, cool. The day after Christmas, 2007, I woke up in the morning. It was December 26th, and I told my wife, I am overwhelmed with the burden. we got to sell whatever we have in the stock market right now. And she says, why? You just put it in like nine months ago. I said, I know, but one of the companies sold that I had invested in, and I had already made six or seven grand in like nine months, and, and it just says sell. So I told my, called my friend, and I said, hey, you got to sell. And he tried to talk me out of it, like all good investors. Like, you, are you afraid of this? I said, I'm not afraid of anything. God put a burden on my heart, and I can't do anything but just sell this. I don't know why. And then January of 2008, everything crashed. People are losing 50% of their retirement and this and that. Am I an investor? No. Do I read the Wall Street Journal? No. Am I an investment moron? Yes. But is God? No. Am I a servant? Yes. He just says, hey, Rick, I just, don't you feel like you're going through life and it's just like God's just giving you little kisses along the way. It's like, that's so cool. That's so cool. You go, well, that's not my story. Well, we just ask you, are you walking by faith? Are you trusting him or are you trusting yourself? If you trust yourself, it's like getting a lump of coal in your Christmas stocking, isn't it? But if you trust God. Paul the Apostle gives this message, and look at it in verse 10. Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with much disaster, much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. He says, you guys, this is going to be a disaster. It was late in the year. It was past the fast, it says, which is the Day of Atonement, which most scholars believe this is, uh, would be October 5th, the Day of Atonement, October 5th, 59 AD. And so they're after that, so it's very dicey to sail. Paul also had experience. Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 11.25 says, Three times I was shipwrecked, and a night and a day I have been in the deep. Paul the Apostle, once again, he had been shipwrecked three times. Once would be enough for me. Especially if I had to spend 24 hours, he said, a night and a day. So a 24-hour period, he's out there floating around in the ocean. Now, if he is in our generation, all you would hear for 24 hours is, da-dum, <laughs> dum Da right? Jaws ruined my life in fourth grade. <laughs> As the captain said, we need a bigger boat. <laughs> but he was an experienced traveler. And as an experienced traveler, he wasn't just whistling in the wind. God put something inside of him. A premonition, a word from God, we're not sure because in a moment we're going to see a very dramatic experience that's supernatural. But right now, it just senses a premonition is a forewarning that you have in your soul that you cannot explain logically in advance of an event. Guys, have you ever had that from your wife? Isn't it a bummer? She tells you, honey, I just sense that this is going to be bad. And I'm like, no, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. And then it happens, and then your wife looks at (laughs) you. I praise God that uh, I'm not a guy that uh, hears from my wife, I told you so. (laughs) She doesn't do that to me. Paul the Apostle, he's going to say, I told you so, here in just a moment. Check it out, though. In verse 11, nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. So the owner of the ship, the the centurion, government official, the owner of the ship, he's got an investment, the helmsman, he's the captain, I'm an experienced guy, he listens to all of them, and then it says the majority advised that they would just make it 40 miles down the coastline to Phoenix, which is a better place to winter and harbor, because Fairhaven's where they were, though it was named Fairhaven's, was really a podunk little spot that they didn't want to spend the winter. Have you ever noticed that Podunk places, they try to give them grandiose names just to sell you on it. You ever been outside of Phoenix and there's places like Sunset and Paradise and all this stuff. You ever been there? It's like the surface of the moon, man. So now they think that they've locked in. Verse 13, when the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close to Crete, but not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clada, we secured the skiff with difficulty. Usually they would tow the skiff or the lifeboat behind, and now they had to secure get it up on the boat but it's in the midst of a storm and so they want it to be up on the deck when in verse 17 they had taken it on board they used cables to undergird the ship and fearing lest they should run aground on the syritus sands they struck sail and so were driven and because we were exceedingly tempest tossed the next day they lightened the ship on the third day we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands now comes the prophecy Have you ever been on rough water on the ocean? I mean, some of us are serious land lovers, right? If you've ever been in just, I mean, the tiniest rough weather on the ocean, it's like you never wanna go back. If you got sick, when I was 16, I went uh, deep sea fishing. And I was with my stepdad, who was a macho guy. There's about 20 people on this catamaran. We're off of Santa Monica. We're out there fishing. And then this storm comes in and the swells and you're going up the swells and down the swells and it's raining and it's blowing. And there's 18 people in the cabin, which was in the middle, all green, all throwing up. And my stepdad was such a macho guy. I knew he would mock me to no end if I threw up and I had a queasy stomach. Now, I was starting to get seasick and I was not going to let him, obviously, if you're you're fishing, it's easy to hurl over the rail, which everybody was, but I had to do it incognito because of my stepdad. So I'm like, you know, you got the little socket for your, uh, Uh, I'm like, watch my pole. And I went to the bathroom. But I hadn't been to the bathroom on a catamaran. You know, the two pontoons and the open area underneath. And so I run in there and I make it just in time before I'm going to throw up. And I run in and I get in the door and slam it. And I throw up the lid of the commode. And I throw up. And at that moment, I realized a big wave brought everything. (laughs) Everything that I deposited towards the ocean came back up and rained down on me. No more incognito. I am covered from head to toe with breakfast. (laughs) If you were to sit on the toity, you would have had a wonderful French bidet. (laughs) Little salt water. I went out the other side of the deck, and it was raining hard, so I just let the rain give me a little shower, knocked off the chunks. And went back and stood by my stepdad like I was a macho man at the age of 16. (laughs) But when you've been on rough water, but this is beyond anything. They had a name for it, the Eurocliden. It's like a hurricane. They're in the middle of this hurricane. They're now out of control. They should have, the centurion listened to the owner of the ship and the captain of the ship. And the majority of the sailors said, let's go on down. And only one voice said, this is going to be a disaster. Because God was ministering through a guy that was in chains. But God's message was not in chains. And God delivered that message. But now Paul, after 14 days, check this out. We see now his prophecy. Verse 20. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. You ever been just at the end of your rope? Christine was talking to me about being at the edge of the cliff. It's a funny thing, isn't it? We tell each other, oh, that person finally hit bottom, right? Ever use that phrase. They hit rock bottom. But you watch some people for 30 years, you keep thinking they're hitting rock bottom, but for them, their bottom is much lower, obviously, than everybody else. <laughs> they just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and it's not until you get to that place that you're really just hopeless. Life has come to the end of the storm that you're in, and you finally get on your knees and say, Jesus, save me. I wish it wasn't so. Now, we have people that are down and outers that hit bottom, but you know, most people are up and outers. They're totally blessed, they have everything they need, and they see no need for God. I kept waiting for my brother Randy to hit bottom my oldest brother, my big brother. Prescription drug addict, heroin addict. Got HIV from sharing needles, shooting up heroin. And I watched him for 25 years turn into a skeleton. He's 53 years old and he looked like he was an 80-year-old man. All his teeth were gone. He went from 170 pounds down to 128 pounds. This skinny little neck. And he had ran from God his whole life. But he finally got to the end of himself. He saw death was on the way, and he came up to me and he grabbed my collar like this. He's my big brother. Now he calls me Ricky. Please don't call me Ricky. (laughs) That's my name, Ricky. You are not entitled to use it. Okay? (laughs) Only people that wipe my rear end can call me Ricky. (laughs) My big brother, my big sister, my other brother, I'm the youngest of four. And he grabbed a hold of my collar and he said, Ricky, I know you've been praying for me and worried about my soul for my whole life, and I want you to know I've made peace with Jesus. You see, for me, that was an earth shaking moment. My brother, dying of AIDS, he'd been a prescription drug addict, a heroin drug addict, an alcoholic, and lived in the homosexual lifestyle for 40 years. And he hit bottom. Six months later, After that, our conversation. He just passed away in his sleep and went to be with Jesus. I have this incredible hope that I'm going to see my brother in heaven. My big brother. What a joy. But for some people, you know, it's like this storm. They finally, after many days, they finally get to the place that you've lost hope. And do you know that actually losing all hope about your circumstances and about your life and about your control and your ability to change anything is the greatest destination that your soul can arrive in because at that point you got nothing to lose but to cry out to God right you you no longer I got nothing to lose God if you're real I need you I need you it says in verse 21 but after long absence from food then Paul stood in the midst of them that long absence they had been tossed in a storm for 14 days we'll see in a moment 14 days no food Then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, men, you should have listened to me. (laughs) I want you to know, Paul the Apostle is my hero, but this is to me just a bit of a low moment to find out that he is, I told you so type of guy. (laughs) You should have listened to me. And not having sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Verse 22, and now I urge you to take heart, be encouraged. What is there to be encouraged about? For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart then, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. He says, you know what? God's angel, the God that I belong to and the God that I serve, he sent his angel to talk to me last night here on the boat. Now the people that 14 days before this storm would have mocked and ridiculed him to death about his vision, they are now all ears. Because that's what storms do. When you have all hope removed, you are desperate for hope. Paul now is going to nourish them with the hope and the promise of the living God. God says there's gonna be no loss of life. There's 276 souls on board. The Lord, the angel tells him, he says, Paul, you're, you belong to me. You serve me. And therefore, because I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to take care of these other 275 people and I'm going to throw them in, in, in along with you. It's all going to be good. We're going to wreck on an island, but no no, fle- no life is going to be lost. Now talk about hope, right? Now, who becomes the captain of the ship in the midst of storms? The people that know God. That's who becomes the captain. That's who become the voice. Because People are looking for faith, hope, and love. The three greatest Christian qualities, Paul the Apostle said. These three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, trust God with all your heart. Hope, the certainty of coming good from the hand of God. And love the people that you're around. Care about them. That's what people are looking for. Somebody that has confidence in this dark, uncertain world because they know God. People that are certain that the future is going to be coming good from the hand of God. Because the hope in the Bible has a different definition than the English version of I hope so. No, it is the certainty of coming good from a loving God. And then we can walk in love in the midst of all of this. Paul brings faith, hope, and love to desperate people that need faith, they need hope, and they need love. Now, if he was a self-centered jerk, he's like, hey, great, God, promise me, kill these two other 275, I don't care, take care of me, right? Me first. That's not Paul's heart whatsoever. It says in verse 27, now when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they are drawing near some land. And some took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship. Now get this. Paul once again begins to give direction. He tells them that they can be filled with faith, hope, and love. God's going to take care of them. And now there's some guys that are going to, it's, (laughs) you know, Every man for himself, a few, say five or six sailors are gonna get in the lifeboat and make to shore since they sense that they're close to land. And Paul tells them, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. These men are key and crucial to what's gonna happen as we wreck on the island tomorrow. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. Who gets rid of their life raft? Who gets rid of the lifeboat? The people that said, to Paul, yes, sir, <laughs> whatever you say, right? Paul's got the hotline to God. He's, he's hearing from God and he tells the centurion, he said, you know, these sailors are trying to escape and it's only natural. Self-preservation is the strongest drive you have. Self-preservation. In the midst of a storm, when push comes to shove, you're going to take care of yourself and not care about everybody else. But Paul, on the other hand, cares about not only what God wants, he's loving God in the midst of this, and he's loving his neighbor as himself. Because he wants to be saved, he wants them to be saved. Because he loves God, he wants them to love God. Because these are the two greatest commandments we see working in the midst of the storm. Love God. Love the people that you're around. Don't cut bait and run just to save your own hide. The Bible says, as Jesus tells us, that greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friends. Paul the apostle says to the centurion, hey, get rid of that lifeboat because these guys got to stay in the boat for all of us to make it alive. So he listens to him. He listens to his advice now. Paul's witness in all of this is that God preserves the life of these other people and cares for them. Not that God also loves them, but it's directly connected to who Paul is in this whole experience. And I want you to know, if you love God, your family, your neighborhood, where you work, your relationships, the ball team, the school, the classmates, God uses you to affect other people with faith, hope, and love. To love God and to love your your friends that are around you and they will see it. Isn't it weird when you get saved and your family just freaks out and doesn't know what to do with you now? Oh no, we got a Jesus freak Bible thumper in the family. Now before when you were out of control and in trouble with the law and closing down the bars, you know, shacked up with whoever, they're like, he's one of us. Now you get, now you want to do good, love God, read your Bible and go to church. You're a freak. It's this weird experience. But with family especially, have you discovered you have to pray for him a lot and not talk to him very much? Because they really don't want to hear from you. anybody anybody testify that? Can I get a witness? <laughs> Can I get a witness? Right? You know the uncle that sneers at you. You snot-nosed kid. I wiped your rear and You know you're telling me about guns. Like, okay. So you pull back, and you begin to pray. And I just I just call it long-range bombing. I pray and I send these bombs. They don't even know where it's coming from. Boom, boom, boom. They're like, man, everywhere I go now, I'm running into these Christians. They're all telling me about Jesus. It's the weirdest thing. (laughs) (laughs) Like, drop the bombs, you guys. Just tell tell Jesus on them. But what happens is they watch your life. Maybe they watch your life for years and decades. And they see that you have faith, hope, and love. They see that you have everything they do not. You have peace with God. And every soul, as the gray hair begins to set in, deep inside of you, you just want peace, right? You've been chasing peace your whole life. You just want peace in your relationship with God. You want peace in your marriage. You want peace with your kids. You just want peace. And the Prince of Peace comes in and he gives you supernatural peace, but he begins to work in their lives and as they see you go through storms and they see you handle it and they see you deal with it, they look at you and they're mystified. You're a conundrum. You're an enigma to them. They're like, how can you have so much peace? Because I trust God. Because I trust God. In the storms of life, your respect dollar, so to speak, are elevated. Everybody's watching. They're watching how you deal with stress at work. They're watching how you deal with stress in your family. They're watching how you, do you run to your knees? Do you cry out to God? Or do you just hit the medicine cabinet and self-medicate? Just need a bottom of volume. Well, I'm really happy <laughs> until it wears off, right? We're oftentimes chasing the wrong things, and yet in this experience, we see Paul, such an incredible witness, and because he's there on the scene, how God prepares. Now, the, they're about ready to wreck the ship. It says in verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day. You have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from your head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. He said, Grace for 276 people. Bless God. Thank you, Jesus, for this bread, this food. Verse 36, then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. Paul's in charge because he's filled with faith, hope, and love. And he says, hey, you guys, he's got one really practical thing. If you haven't eaten for 14 days, I don't know. The longest I've ever fasted is five days because I just, I mean, that's like a miracle to me because I love food. But I know people that have fasted a long time. I've never fasted more than five days. But even after five days, oh man, I am so excited about food. right? But they're seasick and he blesses this and he says, you need physical strength and you need spiritual strength. Here's the bread for your physical strength, very practical, and here's the hope that will nourish your soul. Not one hair is going to be lost off your head. You're going to make it. You're going to survive. Imagine out of that 276 people in an ancient time, how many people couldn't swim. Think of it. No life jackets, right? They don't have any floaties. And what's going to happen? So it says in verse 38, so when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosening the rudder ropes, they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. Now we know even historically, this is 2,000 years ago, you guys. And we know that this bay is the one that they were going for. It's the island of Malta. And this bay right here, the one right there, (laughs) that one, there we go. This is a, this is called St. Paul's Bay on the island of Malta. Historically, for 2,000 years, this is where they ran aground. Don't you love the Bible? It's so connected with history and these, the archaeology and the language, all these things. This is where, which is uh, this ad that I got for this picture is actually about, hey, you want a vacation rental right there along the, uh, the shoreline? Now it's a vacation spot, but it was a safe harbor for them to go to. <laughs> and look what happens. A shipwreck in verse 41 But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. Imagine this ancient ship being crushed by the waves. It's stuck in the sand, so the front of it's stuck. The back of it, the waves are just crushing the ship, breaking it up. Verse 42, and the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, Kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards, some on parts of the ship, so it was that they all escaped safely. Check out this Sunday school cartoon. Just imagine uh, the ship's breaking up. Here's some guys uh, floating on a block of wood. Now, there were some California prisoners, so they came to shore like this. <laughs> You know, it says on some boards, right? They're on some boards. (laughs) Come on, you guys. (laughs) Hang in ten, you know. So they get to shore, but get this. The soldiers, they have multiple prisoners that they're taking to Rome. They're all in chains. And the prisoners, uh, the the, uh, soldiers know, if we go to the shore and somebody can swim, and they're a fast swimmer and they're a prisoner, and they can escape... On the island of Malta, so this is uh, the Roman law. If you lost a prisoner, whatever his crime was that he was charged with, you had to pay the price. So if their prisoner was going to get a murder conviction and experience capital punishment, who died for that if they lost that prisoner? The soldier the soldier lost his life. So the soldier said, hey, we can't lose one of these prisoners because I'm not willing to pay for their crime. And so let's just kill all the soldiers. And it was in their preview for, uh, as Romans in their authority, they could have slaughtered every one of the uh, prisoners and just thrown them into the sea. They could have killed them all, saved their own skin. But notice it says, but the centurion wanting to save Paul. You see, once again, all the other prisoners' lives, because he knew, well, I can't kill Paul and then not kill the others, right? So it's, it's one rule for all. All the prisoners are either going to die or all, they're all going to live. So he tells them, no, no, I, I'm, I'm going to keep Paul alive. I mean, he, here's the guy that's rescued us and got us through this through God's, he knows God, right? So it, it just reminds me, there's a story, Billy Graham was on an airplane and he was going to a crusade and this woman who was a really nervous flyer, any of you guys nervous flyers, you hate to fly. My mother's that way. She's just like a basket case when she gets on an airplane. And and she comes, and when she saw Billy Graham get on the plane, she went over to a seat and she says, oh, Mr. Graham, I am so thankful for, that you're on this airplane because I know God's not done with you yet. <laughs> right? God's got a plan for this servant of the Lord. <laughs> now, she knew the Lord, and the Lord had a plan for her too. But it's this mindset that, oh, God's not finished with Paul. God's, you know what? God's not finished with you. Here you are. You may feel hopeless. You may feel on the edge of the cliff. You might feel like you're in that place. Maybe the storm is so raging. It's not been 14 days. It's, it's been months. Your marriage has been hell. The addiction's been kicking your butt. Whatever it is, God sees, God hears, God knows. The Lord says that he correct, collects your tears in a bottle, the psalmist declared. He sees the tears. Some of you came to church this morning and your only thought all the way here was, I hope that there's a message that will comfort my heart. I hope there's a message that will comfort my heart. My wife put on a Christmas tea when we first planted a church in I know many years ago, almost 30 years ago. And she did it and they had small tables and, and a lady was invited Her husband was a prominent doctor in our community and he had just left her for the nurse that was working in his office. She had two boys and she had resolved that night she was gonna go home and when her boys were asleep, she was gonna kill her two sons in their sleep and then take her own life. But she was invited to this Christmas tea and she's like, well, you know, it's a friend and I'll go and I'll, I'll do what I plan on doing tonight. And Jesus saved her at that Christmas tea. She heard about Jesus. Because you know, Jesus is always throwing lifelines to people to the very, very, very end. As long as there is breath in your lungs and a heartbeat going on inside of you, God is reaching out to you with his love. God loves you, God cares, amen. And so, as this unfolds, then you think, whew, they're going to make it to shore. Check it out in verse 1. Now, when they had escaped, they found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, and they kindled a fire and made us all welcome. Because of the rain that was falling, because of the cold. Wow, they found a safe haven. They found some, isn't it great? These guys are not... Uh, cannibals (laughs) that they land on the island. They're not going to eat them uh, as some delicacy. Look, we have appetizers. Uh, What a blessing. But you would think, sometimes you think, if I can just escape this storm, I'll never have another problem in my life. You ever feel that way? You go from storm to storm, and you keep waiting for all the storms to stop? I used to do that. And I'm like, storms are part of life. They're part of adversity. And you know what? You can't have rainbows without rainstorms. Just the way it is. Because look what happens to Paul. Here he is. You would think that, wow, what a relief. He made it to land. In verse 3, to add insult to injury, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out from because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer whom though he escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However... They were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. <laughs> Imagine, you finally just, what a relief. You're, you're on, and I don't know if you've been on the ocean for multiple days, but when you get, you got to get your land legs because your, your legs are kind of funny. Afterwards. And so they get to shore, and he's, oh man, the warm fire. And he's a servant, so he gets some firewood, throws it on, and a poisonous snake bites him on the hand. Every now and then, don't you feel like that every stinking time you get turned around, that you're getting bit by some weird circumstance? Like every time I turn around, it's like boom, boom, boom. You feel like you're in a boxing match. The last 18 months of our life, hasn't it felt that way? Like, mask, you know, social distancing, and LA County just enforced the mask thing again. I'm just, the Delta variant is so scary. (laughs) 99.8% of anybody that gets COVID, it's a cold or a flu. Can you imagine every year us acting like this with the cold and flu? (gasps) But isn't it normal to a world that has no faith, hope, or love? Right? They don't trust God? They're terrified of death? They don't know how to walk in love, yet that's the charge. We, getting together, are not loving our neighbor as ourselves. I want you to know I am loving you guys today in the best way I possibly can by sharing hope with you. Amen. Amen. I could be doing this from a camera and you could be sitting in your living room and your jammies and your little slippers and that would be nice, but then we wouldn't get to see your beautiful face. We wouldn't be able to have fellowship. And everything, the devil wants to keep us from each other, from worship, from encouragement, from God's word, because if he can isolate us, he can take us down. But when we come together, we're strengthened by God's grace through faith, hope, and love. Amen. Amen. And that's this incredible promise. This is a missionary promise at the end of the Gospel of Mark. At verse 17, though I didn't put it on there, uh, says that these are the signs that will follow those who believe. In verse 18, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. We don't have time, but there's a sick official on this island. His name's called Publius. And Paul, the apostle, goes, lays hands on him and heals him. And then everybody on the whole island comes to Paul and he heals them. God, I mean, he just starts his ministry, gets bit by a snake, shakes it off, has this promise. The promise is that if you're... Now, people in weird cultic places in the south have snake handling churches. So we thought we'd bring out some serpents. We got some over here. No, we don't have any. (laughs) And we got some arsenic so you can drink some poison to see if you're really a child of God and got the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon you. And they think this is what churches are supposed to do. Can you imagine coming to church and that is the test of salvation? Pick up this water moccasin. Pick up this rattlesnake. Psychos. Or drink this deadly thing. No, it's talking about when you're missionaries in a primitive culture and you're going through jungles, there's snakes out there, right? And you drink water, oftentimes the water's bad. And But the Lord says, when you go out believing in me, filled with faith, hope, and love, I'm gonna protect you from those bites of the serpents. I'm gonna protect you from those poisonous things. I'm gonna be with you. That's what this promise is. And we see a fulfillment of it, that passage right here. And, you know, Paul just shakes it off. But, Isn't the fickleness of people's opinions mind-blowing? Because some of us are going through storms because of the opinions of others about us. They presume as they pass judgment on us that they actually know the motives of our heart. Do you know that's why the Lord tells us not to judge one another? Because I don't have all the information. He has all the information, so he judges perfectly. But I don't know, somebody does something and then you misinterpret their motives and you pass judgment. Paul the Apostle was the hero of this shipwreck, and what did the natives think? Oh, he must have been a murderer, a really bad guy. Because though he escaped the shipwreck, God's gonna judge him with the snake. That's their perspective. He must be a really bad guy. Now we have more information, so we know that's not true. But then they change their opinion since he doesn't swell up and fall down dead. He's a god. Isn't that crazy? He's a murderer, he's a God. Now, that's the thing about being a servant and being a preacher and being a public figure is I just want you to know, a lot of the storms that preachers go through is all the yammering and talking that goes on about them and the judgments that that is passed on them. And I just tell people straight up, Because I was on TV, I had a TV ministry for 15 years that reached kind of a 200 mile circle and lots of people got saved. And As soon as you get on TV or live stream, people think, yeah, celebrity. You're not a celebrity. God doesn't have celebrities, he has servants, and I'm a servant. But because when you get certain prominence, people, I was not as good as some people thought I was. I would hear things that people would say, I'm like, I'm not even close to that, whatever that perspective is. But other people had different perspectives that I was worse I just tell people simply, I'm not as good as some people say I am, and I'm not as bad as others say I am. I'm just somewhere in the middle called average Joe. You see, the key to surviving storms of life in this last section was about the natives of an island that had just met Paul passing judgment on him. He's a murderer. And now they want to worship him. He's a God. But Paul's just a servant. Some of us are slaves of what people think of us. And you got to shake it off just like he shook off that snake into the fire. you just got to shake it off. Don't be a slave of what other people think. Paul the Apostle told the Corinthians, he says, it's, I don't care that you're judging me. The Corinthians were passing judgment. He goes, I don't even judge myself. I am under the grace of God and Jesus' love and blood makes me righteous in his sight. Whatever your opinion of me does not change the trajectory of my life. But for some, that has been the storm after storm after storm because you want to be loved by everybody. You want to be liked by everybody. And if you look for that Shangri-La nirvana of everybody loving you and you having a group hug, you are never going to stand for truth. You are never going to stand for truth. Because the Bible says, sell the truth in love. Love Without truth is hypocrisy. I just love everybody. I don't care what their morality is and this and that. And, and, you know, if they're a child of God and the Bible says love does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. I don't rejoice in that iniquity. But truth without love is brutality. You ever hung out with a five-year-old? And they look at you and say, you're fat. <laughs> They haven't learned any social etiquette. They haven't learned that there's some things that that may be true, but it's not very loving to say, right? You're like, you gotta get the filter. Bring the filter. But we are in a generation that unless we stand for the love of God and the love of each other, and we are afraid of people judging us, we are not gonna survive this generation. Because in this cancel culture, when everybody wants to be loved, Everybody wants to be liked. Some people are gonna be elevated that they think they're, you know, God's status and other people are gonna be viewed as the most murderous individual. And the truth is somewhere in the middle, we're just average people that wanna love God. So do not be taken off course with people's judgment of you or people's exaltation of you. Just keep your feet squarely on the ground, love Jesus and serve him and you will survive the storm of public opinion. You will survive the storm of public opinion. All of these things were out of Paul's control. I don't know what the future holds, but Paul the Apostle knew who held the future. And you know what? Though he was going through a storm, those storms might have been over his head, but all the waves that come to your life are always still under Jesus' feet. He's king, he is Lord, and he's got your back. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you for meeting us here today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do a real work in each one of our hearts. And I just want to pray for those precious people that have come today, and Lord, they didn't even realize they were going to be walking in to a message of encouragement and hope that is given from you, Jesus, by your word to their hearts. And we just want to pray for them in the midst of their storm. So we're just in an attitude of prayer right now. If you are going through a storm, we don't need to know the circumstances. Nobody to your right or left will know. Just stand up right where you're at, and we're gonna pray for God's comfort and encouragement on your heart as you go through this time. Just stand up right where you're at. God bless you. We're gonna pray for you guys. Lord bless you guys. Just stay standing. We're gonna pray for you, and then we'll let the worship close us in a song. Lord, thank you for all these precious men and women across this room that are just standing up and you know every detail. The very hairs of their head are numbered. You have seen their tears. You have heard their cry. You have seen the anguish of their soul. And Lord, I pray that you would bring beauty for ashes, that you would give them a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that you would encourage them and infuse them with faith, hope, and love that you are gonna get them through this storm that you're in charge. Some of the circumstances for them may seem so out of their control that they have no ability to control the narrative. But Lord, we look to you and we trust you and pray that you would bless, strengthen, encourage and bring them to the safe haven, Lord. Bring them to the comfort of your love, the comfort of your grace and that they might have a song on their heart to praise you for as you bring them through. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's worship the Lord with this closing song.